Uh, we are continuing our series, uh, Whoville Christmas, answering the who questions about Christmas. We're going to start out with a two-part question. Uh, question number one, how many of you, when you drink coffee, you like to put creamer or milk in it? Show of hands. Okay, lots. Okay. So now the flip side of the coin. When you drink coffee, you like your coffee black. Okay? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep them up. Look at these people. Keep an eye on these people. It's going to become important in a moment. You can put your hands down now. I don't know if you caught it, but just this past week, there was some research that was uh, released and picked up by all kinds of newspapers all around the world. They kind of published uh, publish these reports about this research about people who drink their coffee black. I just screenshotted the, the Reader's Digest one, so let's put it up on the screen. Right away, it should tell you, it just starts bad news. Bad news, coffee drinkers, and I'm not going to give you the answer yet, you're, you might be blank if you drink your coffee black. black. And, you know, what, what, what comes to mind? You know, maybe, I don't know, ulcers or cholesterol. I don't know. What, what, happens, what happens if you drink your coffee black? Well, bad news, coffee drinkers, you might be, put it up there, a psychopath. Makes you rethink sitting next to these people. Some of you sitting next to a couple of them, aren't you? Oh, my goodness. I read the article. I don't know how they come up with it, but it was funny, and it did catch my attention because, grab your study guide. Grab your study guide. The question today is, who's the psychopath in the Christmas story? Because you do know there's a psychopath in the Christmas story, a sadistic man who's intent on hurting and killing. His name is King Herod. And we read about him in in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Let's put it on the screen. says this, Herod commanded the murder... Okay, let's just stop right there. Some of us have been around church way too long. We've heard this story way too many times. You need to let that word sink in for a moment. Because as fun and as joyful and as exciting as Christmas was, you you can't skip this verse. You, You have to think about all the moms and dads, uncles, aunts, grandparents, whose Christmas was destroyed and devastated by this one sadistic psychopath. Herod commanded the murder of every little boy two years old and under who lived in Bethlehem and its surrounding hills. So this morning what I want to do is I want to, because we don't talk about him that often, because he's not fun to talk about at Christmas. But what's his story? What makes this guy tick? Is there anything we can learn, we can glean from him that we can apply to our lives? So we're going to go back to the beginning of Matthew. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles, starting in verse 1 and 2, here's what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw, his, uh, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was upset, and all Jerusalem with him. What was it, a couple weeks ago when President Bush passed away? Um, regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, any time a president passes away, we honor um, them for their service. And so on the History Channel and on Discovery Channel and on all these news outlets, there were stories about President Bush and or the Bush family and the political impact that they have had on our country for the past, what, 20, 25 years. And um, one thing popped into my mind, not, not about President Bush that passed away, but about his son, George W. Bush. And um, something that happened or that he did in November of 2003. Now, 2003 was the beginning uh, of the war uh, uh, in, in the Middle East, in Iraq, against Saddam Hussein. And so 
in November of 2003, we had just sent over thousands and thousands of men and, and women, of, of our men and women armed forces over there to fight against Saddam Hussein. And um, President George W. Bush surprised everybody, literally shocked everybody, because instead of going to uh, the ranch in Crawford to be with his mom and dad, George and Barbara Bush, he got on Air Force One. Do you remember what he did? He flew to the Middle East, went into a war zone, which a president doesn't do, and he showed up at the cafeteria at the mess hall for the armed troops, uh, the forces, and he said, I've come to do two things. Number one, to tell you guys I care and I appreciate what you guys are doing. And second of all, I've come to serve you. And he served them the Thanksgiving meal. And the troops just went crazy. Of course, they got the president, right? The commander-in-chief there serving uh, Thanksgiving meal to them. And no one knew this was going to happen, obviously, for, for security reasons. But when I, I remember when that happened, I thought in much the same way, in a very similar way, that very first Christmas, God did much the same thing. He shows up unexpectedly. I mean, everybody was expecting God to do something at some point. We weren't expecting for him to show up. He shows up to do the same two things that the president did when he went over to be with the armed forces. Number one, to come and tell you he cares for you and he loves you. And you can't forget and miss that message at Christmas. And second of all, he's come to serve you. Eventually, he would serve us through his life and his death, but he's come to serve us, to reunite us with God. So while we're going to spend some time focusing on Herod this morning, we need to remember and always keep in perspective the story of Scripture and the story of Christmas. It's about God becoming man because he loves you and because he wants to serve you. Now, the last part, you see that when these magi show up, they ask a question, and it says, Herod is disturbed. He's upset. He's angry. If you're jotting down notes, there's four things we're going to learn. Here's the first thing. You need to understand that Herod is emotionally immature. He's emotionally immature. Now, not too quickly, we can't throw Herod under the bus. You, you have to put in perspective what is happening here. So these foreign dignitaries show up to his palace, to his courtroom, right? Because they're foreigners and because it's kind of special, you can imagine the pomp. Maybe they blow some trumpets. Maybe the, the, score, the court spokesperson announces them by name as they come in. You know, maybe there's other Jewish dignitaries or advisors standing by Herod as he sits on his throne, right? And there he sits and he welcomes the Magi. And they ask him, what question? We have come to meet and to worship the king of the Jews. Now, time out real quick. At that point in time, they have a king of the Jews. What's his name? It's Herod. Let me ask you a question. You've got to connect the dots here. How would you feel if someone showed up to your job, to your place of employment, and they asked you, yeah, we've come to meet your replacement? And you didn't even know you were getting fired or let go by the company. Because that's essentially what's happening. Yeah, no, we, we, we've heard that God's done with you, King Herod. We've heard he's got someone else that's going to, he's going to sit on the, on the throne. Can you imagine how embarrassing that must have been for him? So let's not too quickly throw him under the bus. Every one of us would feel uh, disturbed, stressed, uncomfortable if out of the blue we heard that we were getting replaced. The issue is not that he's upset because he thinks or someone has told him he's losing his job. That's not the issue. That's normal. The issue is the word and. It's not just that he got upset. No, no, no. And all of Jerusalem with him. 
And you go, what, what, what do you mean? How, how does that work? Uh, do you guys remember this? I, this? For some of maybe a little bit older, do you guys remember the name Zig Ziglar? Anybody? Zig Ziglar? Zig Ziglar was a... He was a motivational speaker. He was Tony Robbins before Tony Robbins was around. He was a southern genteel man with a, with a southern draw. I think he was from Texas. He was a very committed Christian. A great speaker. And he would speak to different businesses on goal setting and priorities and, you know, what motivational business speakers do. And years ago, like 20-plus years ago, someone gave me a bunch of his cassette tapes. Now, if you're a teenager, a cassette tape is what we used to listen to, you know, back 100 years to listen to music and speakers. But forget that. So I had these cassette tapes, and I'm listening to him, right? And Zig Ziglar has a story called Kicking the Cat. Now, if you've not heard the story, it doesn't matter. Just the title tells you it's a fantastic story. There's certainly a wonderful message in there. Kicking the cat. Now, I'm going to shorten it real, real quickly. Here's how the story goes. Something like this. The boss gets pulled over on the way to work, and he gets a ticket. And he's really upset. He's upset because he was just going a couple miles over the speed limit, right? And the cop pulls him over anyway. And because he had to pull over, now he's late for work. Oh, he is upset. So he goes into work with that kind of attitude. First person he sees is a salesperson. He grabs the salesperson. He says, come over here. How's the Wilson account doing? Have you, have you wrapped up the Wilson account? And the salesperson goes, well, no. There's a couple snags that have come up with the Wilson account, and we're still trying to work on that. And uh, I think we might get it. And the boss says, listen, if you can't close the Wilson account, I'm going to find someone that can. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? You either get the job done or you're out of here. And the poor salesman's like, I'm working my tail off. You know, and the boss doesn't even understand there's some serious issues with this account. And that salesman is upset. So he leaves the office. He goes and finds the office manager. And he goes to the office manager. He says, by the way, last week I told you to send out three contracts. Did you send them out yet? And the office manager says, no, I haven't gotten around to that yet. I've been working on some projects. And the salesperson says, listen, if you can't send out those contracts, I'm going to find somebody that can. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're going to either lose your job or you're going to do your job. Now do something around here. And that poor office manager's like, the, the salespeople don't even realize how much we do for them, right? But the, the office manager, she is upset. So she walks out, and she finds a secretary. She goes to the secretary, and she says, by the way, the copy machine hasn't been serviced. I asked you to get it serviced last week. And the secretary says, no, we haven't gotten around to that yet. I've been working on a couple other projects. And the office manager says to the secretary, listen, if you can't get the job done, I'm going to find someone who can't get the job done. Do you understand what I'm saying? Get the job done, or I'll find someone else. And that poor secretary is like, man, I'm, I work like crazy around here. And this office manager isn't appreciating me. Where am I going to get to the copy machine? The, the secretary drives home. And she gets home and she walks into her house. And there is her son sitting on the couch with ripped jeans, right? And she says to him, didn't I tell you, as soon as you come home, you take off your school clothes, you put on your play clothes. Here you are with your school clothes. They're ripped, right? That's it. You're not having dinner tonight. Go to your room. You're grounded, right? And the boy's like upset. She, she doesn't even know. I ripped my jeans trying to do something for her, right? And she he was really upset. And as he's walking to the room, his cat walks right in front of him. <laughs> Bam! Kicks the cat, right? And the story, Zig Ziglar says this. Wouldn't this have been so much easier if the boss, when he got the ticket, instead of going to work, if he had driven right to the secretary's house and kicked the cat, and just avoid the domino impact of one person getting on another person getting on another. Does that make sense? Do you realize that most of the times when people are mean to you, rude to you, uh, uh, impolite to you, do you realize it has nothing to do with you? Something's going on in their life that you may not know about. 
Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a family issue. Um, maybe it's a work issue, but something's going on that's causing them to take it out on you. And we just keep passing that on and passing that on and passing that on. So the question is this, is somebody kicking your cat? Or maybe a better way, do you kick someone's cat? Because you see, that's what's going on with the story of Herod. Herod's upset. And so what this verse is suggesting is, He is upset, so when the Magi leaves, he yells at his advisor standing right next to him. And the advisor yells at the cook when he goes to the the, the palace uh, kitchen. And then the cook yells at his staff. And then the staff yells at the waiters. And the waiter goes home and yells at his wife. And the wife yells at the kids. And there's this domino impact so that Herod, right, he just spreads it to everyone else. So here's the issue that you have to wrestle with. When bad things happen to you, because they will. When you have displeasure in your life, as Herod experienced, do you have the emotional maturity to be upset but contain it? Or do you throw up emotionally on everyone else? Does that make sense? Are you the, you, oh, you see, I know I get that. You're not, we're not going to go out and kill babies this Christmas like Herod did. But some of us in this room will kill the mood in the living room. Because some of us here today, we're that one person in the family that everyone else is talking about. And here's what we're saying. Don't get Sally upset. Don't get Joe upset. Right? Because if they do, Christmas is ruined for everyone. Are you the kind of person that everybody is walking around on eggshells? Because you're you're the Herod for your family? Emotionally, when you lose it, you throw up on everyone else emotionally. It's okay to be upset. I mean, what Herod was asked and what was implied, not fun. But it's not okay to take it out on everyone else. The story goes on. Let's keep reading. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. All Jerusalem with him. We just talked about that. Then he called together all the people's chief priests. He called the teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Second thing you need to know about Herod is that he's spiritually lazy. He's spiritually lazy. Um, if you're going to understand the story of Jesus and the story of Christmas, you have to understand the term Messiah. Very, don't over, overcomplicate it. Messiah simply means to the Jew, Savior. Someone who's going to come and save them. Now, the problem for all of us Western Americans, Christians, is that we only understand it in the concept or in the context of spiritually. Yep, the Messiah came to save me spiritually. The problem is that's not how the Jews thought about Messiah. No, they understood that at some point in time, God was going to send, quote, somebody. They didn't think it was going to be God, just somebody. He's going to come, this individual is going to come, And this individual is going to save the Jewish nation, save Israel in three ways. Politically, culturally, and then spiritually. Most Jews wanted the first one and only the first one. That's what they were wanting. That's what they were expecting. By the way, so did the disciples. When you read the story of Jesus' disciples, the whole point of Palm Sunday, the entire point is they think Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans. That's the whole point of Palm Sunday. 
That's why they're waving palm branches, a sign of independence. That's what that was. So the Messiah is going to come and save us politically, rally the troops militarily, and kick the Romans out. You do know there had been four or five other Messiahs that had showed up before Jesus. You know that, right? Jewish guys who had come and had rallied a bunch of Jews and had tried to take on the Romans, and they'd been squashed. So having a Messiah come was nothing new. They, they just didn't understand that this Messiah was fundamentally different. My point is this. When the Magi asked Herod, where is the new king of the Jews to be born? Did you notice how he flips it? Where's the king of the Jews to be born? He turns to the chief priests, and what does he ask? By the way, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Do you, under, do you see? He connects Messiah with king of the Jews, which is accurate. And here's my point. Herod knows enough about his Old Testament, his Bible, to know that God's going to send a Messiah. He's gone to Sunday school class. He's gone to youth group. He's filled out the notes in church and synagogue. He understands God's going to send a Messiah. He's smart enough to understand that. He's theologically astute enough. But then he's like, yeah, but I can't remember. I know they taught it. There's some small town. Some small town he's supposed to be born. I can't remember. And then he calls the chief priests, the scribes, and asks them, by the way, what's the name of the town? Bethlehem. Bethlehem's two miles down the road. Two miles from where he sits. The next section in Matthew of the entire Christmas story bothers me more than anything else. You want to know what happens right after he's told where they're born? You want to know what happens? Nothing. You go, how does that bother you? Well, time out. The Jewish people have been praying and asking God to send a Savior Messiah for hundreds of years. They're a conquered people. The Romans are taking advantage of them, taxing them, killing them, raping their women. We desperately want the Messiah to show up. And now you have these intellectuals come from halfway around the world and they go, I know this sounds weird, but we've been following this star. And, you know, our, our faith teaches us that we, we actually think this king of the Jews, Messiah, has been born. It's happening right now. And the priests, scribes, and Herod don't even take the time to check it out for themselves. They could have walked to Christmas and they missed it. They missed, you know why? They were lazy. Lazy. Can I tell you something about your spiritual journey? Your spiritual journey actually is quite simple. It's, it, there's not, it's not that much. There's some things you got to know. There's some things you got to do. There's some attitudes you have to develop. And you have to be able to conquer sin. That's it. Some things you got to know. Some things you got to do. Some attitudes you got to develop. And you got to conquer sin. That's it. It's fairly simple. But it's not easy. Do you understand the difference? It's simple. By the way, this book, fairly simple. Did you you hear the kids singing just a couple minutes ago? You hear them? Right now, our kids right in this back area are learning this book. It's simple enough that they can grasp it. But it's not easy. You could spend a lifetime studying this and never get everything out of it. Here's the point. When you're done with your seven, eight, ten hours of work, I get it. You don't want to go to Bible study. You don't want to go to discipleship class. Can I tell you something? Neither do I. You know what I want to do? Go home, watch Netflix. I get, 
I don't want to get up an extra 30 minutes early to do my devotions. I get it. The Christian journey is simple, but it's not easy. You got to put time into it. You got to put effort into it. You got to put energy into it. And the scribes and Herod refused to do that. Oh, no, we're going to know enough to be dangerous. We'll fill out the notes on Sunday morning. But don't ask me to do much more. And my point is this. It's going to take you some effort. It's going to take some energy. The story goes on, verse 7 and 8, Matthew chapter 2. Herod called the Magi secretly. That's interesting. He called them secretly, found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Third thing you need to know about Herod is that he's manipulative. He's a liar. I emphasize the word secretly. Do you know why he asked to meet with the Magi secretly, the second meeting? So they meet with him. Where's the king of the Jews to be born? They go check it out. Oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then sometime after that, before they head to Bethlehem, he meets with them secretly. Why? I I don't actually know the answer. If you know a better answer than what I'm going to share with you, let me know. I'll share it third service. Then everyone will go, pastor's so smart. Right? So if you have a better idea, here's what commentators think. Publicly, Herod is supposed to be for the Messiah. He's a half Jew. He's an Edomite, but he's half Jewish. So as a half-Jew, he should be pro-Messiah. But privately, do you think he's for the Messiah? He's not for the Messiah. By the way, do you you think Herod was the the kind of guy that could hide his emotions on his face? He's the kind of guy you can see, you can read right through him. So when the Magi asked, hey, where's the new king of the Jews to be born? Where's this Messiah to be born? Everybody knew there was a problem. Just look at his expression. Look at his neck veins stick out. Look, he's starting to perspire. They, so he calls them privately. You know, when you find him, if you find him, could you come back and let me know? Because I'd like to worship him. Yeah, right. Okay. He's trying to manipulate the situation. He's lying. He doesn't want to. Well, you know what's going to happen at the end in verse 16. He doesn't want that at all. He's deceitful. He's manipulative. Let me ask you a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much deceit is in you? Is there any? Please don't be prideful enough to think that we've got this all figured out. There's all different ways we deceive. There's all different ways we lie. Let me give you a few. You have them on the screen. You have the careless lie. The careless lie is when you hear something or see something on the Internet and you pass it on without checking it out. Come on now. That's what I heard. Yeah, really? You think that's all true? So when you hear something at the office and just pass it along. When you hear something at school and just pass it on. And then you find out a week from now or a month from now that what you passed on wasn't true. It's not on purpose, but it's careless. Because you didn't double check. You didn't circle back to make sure. The next one is the convenient lie. It's the easy way out. Right. By the way, you do know you don't have to actually say anything to actually deceive. You know that, right? There's a group of people. You're all talking, right? Conversation going on. And someone, someone starts talking at the office about so-and-so, right? The boss, okay? And, and as they're talking, they come to a conclusion that you know is not true. You know it's not true. 
But you can just keep your mouth shut, not say anything. Let them keep believing that. You haven't said a word. That's still deceitful. It's very convenient. No, I'm just going to let them keep believing that because, right, that benefits me a little bit. Or we don't like the boss. You don't have to say anything to be deceitful. The next one is the conceited lie. The conceited lie is when you're trying to impress people, right? Do, do your stories keep getting bigger and bigger as time goes on? Oh, yeah, no, I hit three home runs when I was in high school, right? And one game, one inning, one at bat, all three home runs. And I, the story just keeps getting better and better and better, right? And we all want people to think good of us. It's not, you don't want the opposite, right? You've got to be careful that who we are and how we present ourselves you know, in, our, in our desire to impress others, we don't deceive and make ourselves look better than we actually are. The cowardly lie, you do something at home, you know you shouldn't have done. You do something at school, you know you shouldn't have done. You do something at work, you know you shouldn't have been done. And when mommy catches you, when the teacher catches you, when your boss catches you, instead of saying, you're right, I was wrong, you throw someone else under the bus. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Because we don't want to avoid the consequences. That's the cowardly lie. Now, the one that, that Herod gets in trouble for is, is, is the last one. It's the calculated lie. This is, this is when we manipulate a situation for our personal gain. We manipulate for personal gain. Okay? Skip the cruel lie. We'll just keep going. The, so it's like, it's like the parent in Phoenix, elderly gentleman. He calls his son in New York. He calls his son. He says, I hate to do this to you at the Christmas holiday season, but I just want you to know, I know. Mom and I, we've been married for almost 50 years. I'm sick, and, sick of her, and, and we're getting divorced. We, we're just arguing all the time. We've had it. Come January, we're done. We're filing papers. Well, the son in New York is beside himself. He thought his parents had the perfect marriage. They get along. Everyone looks up to them as a wonderful family, wonderful couple. And here now they're getting divorced, right? The dad also says to his son, by the way, I don't want to tell, tell your sister, you tell her. So the son in New York calls his sister in Cleveland. He says, you're not going to believe what I heard. Mom, dad just called me. He said they're getting divorced. And, and, and she's like, there's no way. I'm going to call him. So the, the daughter in Cleveland calls the dad in, in Phoenix and said, listen, I've talked to my brother in New York. Both of us tomorrow, we're getting on planes. We will be in Phoenix tomorrow afternoon. We're going to stay there for a week. We're going to figure this out. You're not doing anything until we get there and we talk this through. You understand? Yep, they hang up. Dad, the husband, turns to his wife. He smiles, gives her a high five, and says, well, they're coming for Christmas. (laughs) That's a fun little story. But with Herod, not so fun. With Herod, it's much more malicious. Before I move on, one to ten, how much deceit is in you? Something we got to work. There's a reason God adds don't lie as one of his top ten commandments. Because he knows that we have a propensity at some point in time, in some angle, in some capacity to deceive. So be honest enough with yourself to know who you are and what you need to work on. Okay? The last thing that you need to know about Herod is that he's selfish to the core. So I didn't give you the verse, but that's verse 16. That's where he's murdering. What that tells us more than anything else is that he's... Now, selfish is, hey, I'm more interested in me than I'm interested in you. That's selfishness. He takes it to, to the extreme of, I'm selfish, even if it means you suffer. See, in the context of understanding the Messiah, a live Messiah benefits all of us. 
we all benefit. A dead Messiah benefits Herod. Because if the Messiah is dead, he gets to keep staying on the throne. He, he still gets to be the king of the Jews. The only one that benefits with a dead Messiah, essentially, is Herod. And he's like, no, I, no I, I, I get it that everyone else would benefit. No, I get it that the Romans might be kicked out. No, I get it that everybody gets spiritual revival. I don't care. I don't care. I care about me. I'm going to take care of me. And the point is that he's more interested in personal comfort than kingdom advancement. That's what it comes down to. Now, this is subtle, but this comes up even at Bay Hills every so often. Just had a conversation with someone six weeks ago. Yeah, Pastor, I, yeah, I, I think we're, we're getting way too big. We've got to stop doing that and stop doing that program and let's not hire. We, we're getting way too We've got to stop that. Well, time out. Did, are you saying what I think you're saying? You're more interested in personal comfort because the bigger we get, the more awkward it gets. The bigger we get, I don't recognize people. The bigger we get, the further away we got to park. Right? Oh, that's hard. Bigger we get, I didn't get my loaf of bread and my donut. Oh, it's not easy necessarily. But we're going to put personal comfort instead of kingdom advancement. We're willing to say, you know what, to the rest of the community that aren't here on Sunday morning. You know, I'm going to heaven. I don't know about you. You've got to figure it out on your own. Because essentially that's what we're saying. No, I get it. It's very uncomfortable to grow. It's not the easiest thing. You, don't th- you think it's e- hard for you? How about the staff? But in the end, you make a choice. Kingdom advancement is more valuable than personal comfort. Here's the summary. Let's think about Herod. Let's put it up there. He's selfish at others' expense. We already talked about that. He subtly manipulates others. We're very, by the way, when you manipulate others, right, here's how you do it. You do it in a way that if you get caught, if you get called on the carpet, you can go, oh, no, I didn't mean it that way. That's good manipulation. You, there's always a way out. There's always a way to slither out. But if you don't get caught, you're manipulating, and that's what he's doing. And that's what we can subtly do. It's not overt. It's subtle. It's subtle. It's sophisticated. He talks a good game. Right? Yeah, Messiah. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I serve around the church. Yep, I throw money in the offering. Yep, I go to small group. He talks a good game. But the more you look at he's spiritually lazy. He's not willing to put in the hard work to become spiritually healthy. All right? When he's stressed, when he's upset, everyone's stressed. Everyone's upset. Now, we started out having a little bit of fun talking about Herod as a psychopath. He's a sadistic you know, man that murders kids. We're not like Herod, right? No, you're not. But when you look at that screen, do you have the courage and the honesty to admit that maybe possibly at least one of those statements might refer to you. Selfishness, manipulation and deceit, laziness, and emotional immaturity. I don't know about you, but I can see at least one line that might refer to me. And the more you dig in the story even of Herod, you realize I can learn even something from Herod. 
It's easy, right? Just don't be like Herod, which means you look at that screen and you go, that one thing that's popping out to you right now, go in the opposite direction. Go in the opposite direction. Now, from an applicational point, you know, a lot of times as a, as a teacher, if, if, if I can't find a, a clean application, just stay in Scripture. Just keep reading because it's right there. So that's what I'm going to do. And right now, right after the story of Herod, immediately after, we have a couple verses on someone that you talk about an opposite. He was the dad of Jesus. We talk about Mary and make a big deal about her, and we should. But the dad of Jesus, also pretty impressive. Here's what we read. Let's put it on the screen, verse 13 and 14. When the Magi had gone, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Did you notice, by the way, that when the angel shows up to Mary... She gets a live angel, a real angel. When the angels show up to, to Joseph, he gets an angel in the dream. Have you noticed, Did you notice how subtle it is? I don't know why, but that is very interesting. He always gets the angel talk to, talking to him in the dream. The Magi had gone. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt. So here's where we're wrapping up. Our application for the day, let's put it up there. Two things. Number one, start using creamer in your coffee. <laughs> just in case. Just, you know what's sad? Some of you, that's all you're going to remember from this morning. You're not going to believe what I heard in church. We're an all-service church trying to help you out. The main one. Obey God even if it's uncomfortable. Did you catch what Joseph did? God speaks to him, you're in trouble, right? And what he does is he wakes his wife up, and we think toddler infant, right? And he says, we got to go. What do you think Mary said right at that moment? Like tomorrow? Like later? No, wake the baby up. Wake the baby up. Have you gone and lost your mind? Do you remember what it was like when you finally got the baby to sleep? We're going to wake the baby up now? That's not easy. That's not comfortable. And that's the point. The point, the the easy contrast from Herod is obey. That's the contrast. On the backside of your study guide, write it out real quick. I'm going to go through these four real quickly. Four ways I want to encourage you to uh, obey. Number one, obey God immediately. Don't procrastinate psalm 119 verse 32 i will quickly obey your commands quickly can i ask you can i just say something to you some of you stop praying about it what are you praying about you know what he wants you to do obey him now you don't need to pray about it anymore you don't need to meet with me and get your my advice do it he tells you to do it do it psalm 119 verse 60 i will hasten and not delay in other words i'm not making excuses to obey your commands. Let me t- listen to this really carefully. This might be worth writing down. Delayed obedience is really a form of disobedience. If you've had a kid, you know what that means. Delayed obedience is really a form of disobedience. Go clean your room. Well, haven't you cleaned? Oh, you wanted me to clean it now. No, I wanted you to clean it next month. Now. Move. Next one is obey God completely. Psalm 119, verse 4. You have laid down precepts, which is a fancy Bible word that means commands. You have laid down your precepts that are to be fully obeyed. 
Do you guys remember buffet restaurants? There's not that many out there anymore, right? But you remember buffet restaurants? You go to a buffet restaurant, they got scads of food everywhere. You know, I'll have that dish, and I'll have that dish. I'm not going to have that. I'm going to skip that. Oh, I'm going to have double portion of that. Right? You get to pick and choose. Some, some of us do that with this book. Oh, I'll have that verse. Oh, I really like that one about him giving me joy. I'm going to skip that one. There's no way I'm doing that one. This is not buffet food eating. You don't get to pick and choose. You do it all. Yeah, pastor, but see, my problem, I don't understand it yet. I'm glad you said that. Look at the next verse. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. I'm reading it from your study guide because I only put half of it up on the screen. Uh, trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Who do you think you are? You really think you're that smart? You really think you can figure out everything of God? I want to hang out with you. Man, listen for God's voice in everything you do. Everywhere you go, he's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. I don't know... uh, I don't know how a plane works, do you? I really don't. Do you understand how you could take a, a piece of metal and make it fly? But I didn't walk to New Jersey for Thanksgiving. I got on that plane, and I flew. I don't know how my car works. Do you? Some of you might. I don't know how my car works. I drove here. I don't understand how a white cow can produce, can eat green grass, but produce red meat. But I had me a hamburger last night. (laughs) I could go on. You don't have to understand everything in here for you to do it. You get that? You don't have to understand it. At some point in time, you understand it enough to do it or not. It's just that simple. You obey completely, not only when you understand. Next one is you obey God joyfully. Psalm 100, verse 2, obey him gladly. Obey him gladly. Come before him singing with joy. I find pleasure in obeying your commands. Right? If you've had a teenager, you know how this goes. As a parent, I don't want you to just do what I do. I don't want to hear, I don't want to, do I have to clear it? Don't do that. Don't be shuffling your feet, moaning, groaning, and complaining. Do you do that with God? Oh, we obey him, but we moan and complain. Last one, obey God continually. This is interesting. Psalm 119, verse 12. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. One translation says, until the day I die. That's powerful. Psalm 119, verse 33. Just tell me what to do, and I will do it. As long as I live I'll wholeheartedly obey. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to ask yourself for a moment, as uncomfortable as it may be, in what one way are you most like Herod? Is it selfishness? Is it deceit? Is it laziness? Or is it emotional immaturity? Which one way... Are you most like Herod? Take a moment, nail that down. Next question, last question. 
what one thing does God want you to obey him in? You haven't. What one thing does God want you to obey in him in that you haven't? I want you to take 20 seconds, you and God. Don't waste the last 30 minutes. Why did God want you in church here this morning? What does he want you to do differently based upon what you learned? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I I can't imagine what that Christmas was when Herod's soldiers showed up in Bethlehem, started killing kids. Father, the last thing we want to be is is in any shape or form like Herod. And and we we get it. We're we're not going to go kill babies, but the more we dig into who he was and why he did what he did, we can honestly say, yeah, there's little little parts of us that might be like him. And we don't want that. We don't like that. So give us the discipline, the honesty to acknowledge that and turn the other way. But even as we reflect it, just right at the end on Joseph, help us be a people. Help us be a church. Help us be individuals that obey. We don't have to have it all figured out. But we do, once we hear your voice, do what you ask us to do. Thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.